we thank God again for the opportunity to be here, um, hoping that your pastor heals very soon and uh, be back in, in the service uh, doing what he loves to do, and that's preaching the gospel. I'm thankful again for God's grace and goodness to us, and uh, the songs this morning uh, really had a theme of praising God for what he had done for us, and I'm really thankful for the grace of God. As Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Father, to thee we come, and we come with a thankful heart, because I know that any goodness of ours or anything, Father of heaven, that's been accomplished, all the praise belongs to thee. We thankful, Father, for the hope we have of eternal life and the hope we have of someday spending an endless eternity with thee. And I pray that thou will help us as we journey along the way. Now, Lord, I need you, as I always do. I need you this morning. I pray that thou will help me to be able to say what I have on my heart and, and to say it in a, in a way that people can understand. I ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. I think as they were singing that last song, when I first began to study after Brother Bartlett had called and asked me to come, I was going to preach on the resurrection. Uh, I love the uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That entire chapter is about the resurrection and various aspects of it. In fact, uh, it takes me three separate messages to cover that chapter. And, uh, but my mind was led somewhere else. You know, for some people, uh, Christmas is the best time of year. For other people, Thanksgiving. And for some folks, it's their birthday. But for me... Uh, Easter or the Resurrection Sunday is the best day of the year. I, I really, I really enjoy that, that holiday and uh, that celebration, Christian celebration more than others. But my mind was led in a different way and uh, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about shame this morning. I've entitled my lesson, The Loss of Shame. Shame is something that each one of us feel. It's a natural feeling. It's a feeling that comes whenever that there is something uh, in our minds and in our conscience that we feel that is not right, something that a behavior, an attitude, and sometimes even a thought that we feel is displeasing to God. We have a, a, a sense of shame. And, and that shame is a natural thing. It's something that, uh, well, Adam and Eve had it in the garden after they sinned. Uh, they felt ashamed. They felt ashamed to, to fellowship with God. Uh, God, uh, before they sinned, God would come down in the cool of the evening and he, he would, they would have fellowship with the Lord. But after they sinned, they had a sense of shame. And uh, shame is something, my friend, that is a, a good part. It's something that, that uh, helps us in being able to overcome things that are wrong. The ability to blush, the ability to feel shame is really a good thing. But I believe that we're living in a culture who is losing the ability to feel shame. There's things that are done. There's things that are done publicly. There's things, my friend, that, that people do that they ought to be ashamed of. And in some cases, instead of being ashamed of it, they actually are bragging about it. I was reading the other day some actress, I forget her name, uh, I, I don't watch movies, uh, so uh, I, I don't know many of these actresses. But anyway, she had put a nude picture on her uh, social media. 
and I never seen it. I wouldn't want to. I didn't go there. But I was reading this article about her putting this nude picture, and she's not the only one. I've, I've read of several others uh, putting on nude pictures, and instead of being ashamed, she was bragging about it. That's a terrible condition. When a society loses its ability to feel shame, when things can be done in the open, in broad daylight, out in public, and people, my friend, not feel ashamed about it, that is a tragic and terrible loss. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with us to the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm going to read in chapter 4, uh, starting at uh, verse 17 through 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now this passage, the Apostle Paul is giving us a description in the world in which he lived. Uh, in some ways it is similar to ours, not in every way. But this is a description, my friend, of the world in which the Apostle Paul lived. You can turn to Romans, the first chapter of Romans, and you will find a similar description of the Gentile world there as well. But he says here, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Paul is speaking, of course, to Christians, and the word Gentile here is referring, my friend, to pagan people. Uh, it is people who do not know the true and the living God. And uh, that's what the word Gentiles was referring to. And he, Paul is simply telling us here in this phrase that a Christian must no longer, my friend, live like unsaved people do. The sinful way of life must be abandoned. Uh, you can't continue to live like, my friend, people who do not know God. Uh, you, and, and the word henceforth means that since they had become a Christian, henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And then he tells us how they walk in the vanity of their mind. The word vanity means futile. It means senseless. It means useless. It's uh, de described in, in those terms. That's the definition of it. But it's something that, my friend, is senseless and useless. And the excuse me, fertility of their minds, my friend, simply means that their mind is full of useless thoughts. Things, my friend, that, that are just uh, senseless. Just senseless. Don't make any sense at all. And that's what he's referring to here. In Romans, in the first chapter, in the 21st verse, we have a parallel passage where Paul said, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish hearts was darkened. Here again, he's talking about vanity becoming vain in their imagination. And because of that, their foolish hearts was darkened. Their senseless minds were darkened. I don't know whether you understand, my friend, but we are what we think. As a man thinketh, so is he. You and I are made up if we could turn ourselves inside out and see really what is at the core, you would find that it's thoughts. It's thoughts. 
And all of those thoughts, and they are all in our in our brain, and and, and there's there's multitude of them, multitude of them. But those thoughts is what makes us up and makes us what we really are. And Paul here is speaking about senseless minds. Uh, a mind, somebody said, what do you believe that means? I believe it means a mind that is void of a true sense of reality. And that what they're thinking is not real. They're living in a world that has no God in it. And my friend, that's not reality. To live without, my friend, the thought of God and the knowledge of God and realizing, my friend, that uh, God is the creator of the world, to, to think that way is to think in a way that's not really real. It's that, that's not reality. The reality is that we, my friend, and the world in which we live is all a creation of an almighty God. And that we are responsible to Him because He has created us with a capacity to know Him, to love Him, and to obey Him. And we are under obligation to do that. That's reality. That's reality. But in their senseless mind, they, they, they don't acknowledge God as God. They don't think of Him as the Creator God. And they, they do not glorify Him as God. And became vain in their imagination. They're living in an imaginary reality. They're living in a reality, my friend, that they don't believe they're going to have to answer to God. They're living in a reality, my friend, and going on with their life and, and doing the things that they do without, my friend, a sense of what... They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue of what really is and that is that we are creatures of God and accountable unto Him. This loss of sense, you know, senseless minds, to me, I was thinking, meditating, but the loss of common sense is a great loss. Things that everybody ought to know. And my friend, there seems to me at least... Uh, in uh, in certain areas of our culture and society, there's very little common sense. It just don't make sense. It just it, there, there's no sense to it. There's no reality to it. And the reason for that is it because of their ignorance of God. And then he said, here having their understanding darkened because of the choice that they've made, my friend, in not honoring God as God, their, their understanding, my friend, is darkened. There's a deep-rooted ignorance in them. And my friend, this ignorance is that it's because they do not acknowledge God as God. That, that's where, that's the heart of their ignorance. They don't, my friend, Acknowledge what is really real. They live in darkness. The ignorance that's in them is an ignorance of God. That's, that's what they're ignorant of. And then he said, being alienated from the life of God. And the word alienated means separated. And because of their attitude towards God and, and God not in their thinking... God not in their worldview. God's not in the way that they look at life, my friend. Then they're alienated from the life of God. That means they're separated from God. They, they, are, they are just, they're creatures of God but don't know it. They're made in the image of God to be able to respond to God. But they, 
they don't really know that. They don't really understand that. And God, uh, it says here, alienated from the life of God. God is a source of life, my friend, worth living. He's the source of life. And when we become alienated from the life of God, we become separated from God. We also become separated from a life worth living. We live in darkness. That's where, that's, that's, that's where they live, in the darkness of their understanding and separated from the life of God. The ignorance that is in them, of course, is due to the hardening of their heart towards God. And then he says, who being past feeling, have given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, this is, this is referring to the loss of shame and the ability to feel shame. The sinful conditions that I just very briefly went over in verses 17 and 18 have a threefold effect upon people, and that's, that's found in this 19th verse. The first effect was that it resulted in a progressive loss of moral sensibility. It's a decaying of conscience. God has created man with a conscience. But that conscience, my friend, can be nurtured. It can be, it can be a tender conscience that responds, that has uh, a, it's, it's sensible. Sensibility is what it's called, but it's able to feel. But there's also a hardening. The Bible speaks of the searing of the conscience. And there, uh, people can my friend, progressively lose the ability to feel right, what's right and what's wrong. You know, the conscience has three functions. First function of the conscience, it's the place where our standard of right and wrong is kept. Second, it, it gives us a feeling of ought or ought not. And the conscience, whenever... A behavior or an event or an action is before us. We have a choice. The conscience gives us a feeling that we ought to do it or we ought not to do it according to the standard of right and wrong we have in our conscience. And the third function of the conscience is that it gives us a feeling of, of uh, approval or disapproval depending on whether or not we've done what the conscience has uh, indicated we ought to do. A progressive loss of a moral sensibility is a decaying of the conscience. The conscience no longer functions in all three of those functions. It no longer, my friend, uh, retains the standard of right and wrong. It no longer gives us a feeling of ought or ought not. It no longer gives us the sense of approval or disapproval. And when the conscience decays, my friend, people can do things that are wrong without feeling bad about it. The second result is in giving themselves over to lasciviousness. Lasciviousness, of course, is moral evils of all kind. But it's when the conscience, when the conscience is lost, and the loss of shame, and the loss, my friend, and the conscience decays to a point, then people can give themselves over to all kinds of ungodliness without feeling bad about it, without feeling any shame, without, my friend, realizing just how ugly and how, how terrible a situation is that they're in. And the third result is an eagerness to indulge in moral filth of all kinds. And 
it says here, to work all uncleanness with greediness. There are some things that are filthy. They're ugly. They're dirty. They're filthy. Uh, the Bible uses in this particular instance, unclean. There are things that are dirty. They're filthy. And yet, my friend, people are eager to indulge in that moral filth. It says here, I read it, to work uncleanness with greediness. It means they're eager to, to, it's like a hog. Uh, As one scripture said, that people that go back to sin, uh, it's like a hog that returns to its wallowing in the mud. Why does it do that? Well, uh, it, it does that to cool itself off. That's, I mean, the mud, uh, the hog gets down in the mud, and uh, the cool mud, the water that's in the mud, has a cooling effect on their body. But they can waller in all kinds of filth. and The Bible uses that as an illustration, or like a dog that returns to its vomit. Now, a dog has the ability to eat dead things. A dog has the ability to eat vomit. And, and, and the scriptures is saying that people that, that indulge in these ungodly, filthy things are just like that. It's, it's ungodly and it's, it's filthy. But the worst part about it is they're eager to do it. There's a, as the word here that the King James uses is greediness. It means being eager, eager to do it. And he said here, being past feeling. That's a terrible state. To waller in filth and ungodliness, to live, my friend, in disobedience to God, and to do it, my friend, without feeling bad about it. The conscience, and, and this is speaking, of course, in the extreme, uh, extreme sense, but the conscience could come to the place where it's past feeling. It's just... There's no feeling left there. There's no moral sensibility. And the idea of being past feeling has the idea of progressively getting there. You know, people, our, our culture didn't just wake up one day and the next, but it has taken several decades for us to get to where we are. It began... Several decades ago, 50, 60 years, maybe even more. But there became, my friend, a progressive turning away from God and the things of God. And progressively, uh, and in fact, it's come to the place that many of us, you know, older folks, we remember the 40s and 50s, you know. And, and we, say to, we say to others, I never believed it would ever get like this. And that's true. I mean, I never thought we'd come to a place where we are today in our culture where things are accepted as they are in many areas. Sin, by its nature, gradually gets worse. I mean, that's the nature of it. It gradually gets worse from one place in the Bible that talks about evil men waxing worse and worse. Now that's not a prophecy of the last days. What that is, it's a statement of the nature of evil. Because if it had been a prophecy, Paul said in the first century that men would wax worse and worse. If that was a prophecy that from his day the world would gradually get worse and worse, it was a false prophecy because that's not what happened. There have been times of awakening, revival, the, the Protestant Reformation, the holiness awakening. I mean, it, it hasn't progressively gotten worse. 
since Paul said that. But what that is, it's a statement of the nature of sin. And the nature of sin is to progressively go lower and lower and lower. And this, is, this passage of text is talking about this being past feeling. Paul makes it very clear here in this passage and in others that this hardening of the heart is a willful process. It results from stubborn, sinful rebellion, my friend, against God's moral law. Stubborn, persistent rebellion against the law of God. And again, my friend, it takes people, it takes an individual, and it also takes a culture and collective sense deeper and deeper and deeper. This, this, uh, this expression, being past feeling, refers to the loss of all sense of guilt and shame. It's, they're just past feeling. I mean, they can indulge. Uh, I've read where some of these, uh, they have these parades and uh, uh, homosexual parades and that people in public are engaging in perversions of all kinds of things. No shame in broad daylight out in the open. No shame. And that's what this is referring to, my friend. Someone, my friend, who has stubbornly rebelled against God and God's moral law, and they come to a place where they're all, they just have lost all moral sensibility. They have no moral sensibility, no, no, no sense of guilt, no sense of shame. And this loss of the sense of guilt and shame is a tragic loss. People become, can become so calloused that they're past feeling guilt and shame. That's what Paul's referring to here. This is a very dangerous state of mind. I'm going to tell you. It's a very dangerous state of mind and heart because it makes bringing people to conviction and repentance almost impossible. This loss of shame in our culture, my friend, will have terrible consequences. It's like giving people a license, giving them a license to do what is wrong, to do, my friend, to engage in these things. In fact, it went on to say, being past feeling, what happens to them? They've given themselves over to lasciviousness. <laughs> lasciviousness is one of the ugliest words in the New Testament. It's a, it's a very disgusting word, I mean, in its, in its meaning. And it actually, la, lasciviousness, I'm not pronouncing Lasciviousness, well, lasciviousness, comes from the word license. And what it, what it means is a freedom from all restraint. No more moral restraints, and I'm talking about inner restraints. And, and when a culture goes down this road, instead of laws my friend, enforcing morality, the laws change to the place where they protect immorality. And immorality 
is licensed and protected by law and encouraged by the culture and society. And that's a tragic thing because historically, no culture has ever survived that. They just become a memory written in a history book. When people take that path and go down that path, it leads, my friend, to annihilation of that culture. And it ought to. Because, my friend, people can become unredeemable when they have a loss of the sense of guilt and shame. They become unredeemable. There's nothing in them for God to use to prompt them to do what is right and to bring them to confession and repentance. This verse, lasciviousness, contains a variety of ideas, but and I, the basic idea I want to bring is it means throwing off restraints, you know. Unable to be ashamed. And in that, there's no self-respect, no regard, my friend, for public decency. And most people, most people have enough, my friend, decency that they want to hide their sin. But these people are past that. The people that Paul's describing here are past that. I'll tell you what this is describing. is a bold and insulting disregard and disrespect for God and His commandments. And he says here, giving themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. I've already mentioned that, but it simply means, my friend, eager to practice every kind of evil. Doing everything to excess. Doing everything to excess. All kinds of evil. They greedily indulge in all kinds of moral filth and perversion. And they abandon themselves to this uncleanness. They're giving themselves over to unbridled, my friend, longing for all kinds of evil. Now that's a that's a that's a terrible picture of any society, right? That is a that and, and not only is that a, a frightful thing, it's a tragic thing. It's tragic that people get in that kind of condition. Somebody said, why, how does this happen? Why does this happen? Now, <clears throat> hold on. Buckle up your seatbelt because we're going for a little bit. We're getting in a little bit of turbulence here. One of our greatest securities against sin is to be shocked by it and ashamed of it. I mean, that... You know, as a, as a child of God, if you have a tender conscience and are easily, uh, your, your conscience is tender so that when you do something wrong, you feel bad about it. You blush easy. You have a sense of modesty. You have a sense of, of, uh, of honor. You do things out of a sense of 
honor and modesty and humility that, that nobody would require it of you, but you do it because that's what your character is. That's who you are. That's who you are. We're witnessing, as I said, a decay of moral conscience. And with that decay of conscience, there's a corresponding loss of shame. There are many causes of this. There are many causes. We could go down the line, the government, the media, the entertainment industry. I mean, we could go down the line. But I, will, I want to come a little bit closer. There's no greater cause than the church's failure to preach and proclaim God's law. We've gotten away from preaching the law of God. We've been, ashamed, we've been shamed into not preaching it. We've been accused of being legalists if we preach on the law of God, the commandments of God. And I say again that when the, the church ought to be the public conscience of any culture in which she exists. The church ought to be that public conscience. But, and I'm speaking here in general terms, some of our churches have embraced, and more and more of them are doing so, embracing perversion, embracing, my friend, uh, things like homosexuality, abortion, etc., Friend, when that happens, we become part of the problem instead of the solution. We become part of what is causing all of this ungodliness that's going on in our world. In fact, it's become very popular to ridicule, ridicule those who preach the necessity of keeping God's commandments. Uh, I know that because I'm a, I'm a holiness preacher. And, and uh, I believe that anyone who fails to keep the commandments of God will not inherit final salvation. The Bible teaches us time and time again, if you love me, keep my commandments. He that says that he loves God and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. There's so many passages. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Let no man deceive you into believing, my friend, that, and then Paul lists a whole host of sins, that these people have any inheritance in the kingdom of God, they do not. And what he's talking about is professing Christians that continue to live in sin. Don't be deceived. They do not have any inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God. Somebody said that's pretty straight. Well, somebody ought to say it. It needs to be said. I tell you what, they make, they ridicule us, and they refer to us as legalists. <laughs> that's one of their, that's one of their catchwords. Legalists, you know. He's nothing but a legalist. He requires people to keep God's commandments, to be able to, to have a hope of final salvation. They also accuse us of being judgmental. Oh, that I see. I see, I see that taking hold in our culture. It won't be long until preaching like I have done during my life is going to be called hate speech. I know that. And, and in, cer in certain circles, it's already referred to as that. Hate speech. Because it is being judgmental. It's being unloving. 
Jesus loved everybody and these people are so unloving. They say that about us because we condemn sin. But neglecting to preach the claims of God's commandments, my friend, has already and will continue to result in a paralysis of the moral sense of right and wrong. What gives a person a moral sense of right and wrong? Do you know the answer to that question? What gives a person the ability to have the feeling of ought, not, not, and to have the feeling of of guilt and shame? I'll tell you what it is. It's the law of God. Paul said, I would not have known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And he tells us in that same chapter in Romans, he said that, It is the law that causes sin to be seen as sin. But we we don't want to preach on the law. We want to preach on grace. And there's nothing wrong with preaching on grace as long as, my friend, you preach the whole gospel. Nothing wrong in that. But we become lopsided today. I'm telling you, we emphasize one thing to the neglect of the other. And it is resulting in, in, in a terrible consequence. The paralysis of a moral sense of right and wrong has, has allowed people to do things without any compulsion of conscience. Without the law of God, there is no true sense, my friend, of moral discrimination. Somebody say, what do you mean by moral discrimination? Moral discrimination is the ability to discriminate between what's right and what's wrong. You lose your moral discrimination. You also lose your moral sense of obligation. And that is that you feel obligated to do what is right and refrain from doing what is wrong. There's not many, believe me, there's not many, my friend, that's insisting on obedience to God's moral law as a condition of final salvation. And I'm talking in Christendom as a whole. We're part of the problem if we're in that situation. The church becomes, instead of a solution to the problem, it becomes part of the problem. But the truth is, and I've preached on it here within the recent, your pastor has and others as well, but the truth is, There is no salvation where obedience to God's law and commandments are not insisted upon. So help me God. It is the law of God that awakens the conscience. The law of God is the quickener of the conscience. It is the law of God that produces conviction of sin. Paul said, I had not known what lust was, except the law said, thou shalt not cover. In other words, he had that sin, but he didn't know it was sin until the law showed him it was sin. I know this sounds strange. I know it does. But the church needs to 
thunder forth the law of God, my friend, to arouse the conscience of our culture and society. They need to be told that what they're doing is, is, is contrary to the creator that made them. And that what they're doing, they're going to have to answer for. There's a day of reckoning coming. Now, we talked this morning, we, we sung about that day uh, from a Christian point of view. What a day that will be! But on the other side, my friend, at the same time, there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day, in the Bible it's called the day of final judgment. But there's a day in God's mind that he already knows when that's going to occur because he knows everything. But there's a day that God has set when this world as we know it will come to an abrupt end. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be frightening. And it's going to be terrible. And after that, we're going to each one of us go before we go to our final home. Christians who die now are not in their final home. They're in a place that Jesus called paradise. But there's another place that's called in the scriptures the new heaven and the new earth. And we go to that new heaven and new earth when we get our new body. We do not get our new body when we die. We get our new body when Jesus returns. And those things are all future. But before we go to our eternal home, we're going to each one of us stand before God and give an account. The Bible said we're giving account unto God whether good or evil. That means good people and bad people. That means the righteous and the wicked. Somebody said, I'm saved, I don't have to face the judgment. Yes, you do. Yes, you do have to face the judgment. And you and I, my friend, will have our life reviewed. And the only thing that will save any of us is because that we've accepted Christ and Christ owns us as one of his in that day. That day of reckoning is coming. People are totally unaware of it. I mean, in, in general, you know, they're just totally unaware of it. They're living in a, an imaginary world, not in reality. Not in reality. The real reality of the situation is that we're going to have to go and meet God. It is God's commandments that reveal the sinful condition of our heart. It's God's law and His commandments, my friend, that show us what we're like inside. It's like a mirror, as Paul said, and others. It, 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 has, it has the effect of showing us ourselves. And when the law of God is neglected, all of these things, my friend, do not occur. None of these things, I should say. Preaching that is needed today would arouse shame and guilt. And, and what it would do, it would result in conviction of sin, which is the, it's, it's a prerequisite of real faith and repentance. Conviction of sin. Being convicted that you really do need a Savior. You are lost. You're a sinner. By choice. You're not just a misfortunate victim of circumstances. You've sinned against God. You've done it knowingly, willfully. 
I say again that that conviction of sin, in fact, that's one of the purposes that the Holy Spirit is sent into the world to convict the world of sin. I'm going to close. But the loss of a tender conscience with a corresponding loss of moral sensibility is as I've said. I've said it two or three times, but that's a tragic loss. A tragic loss for an individual, a tragic loss for a church, a tragic loss for a culture or society. Has your moral sensibility, the the sense of ought and ought not, has that decayed over time? Do you still have a tender conscience? I can't answer that. You, every one of you have to answer it yourself. People can come to a place where they're no longer convicted very easily of wrongdoing. Conviction is different than knowing that you've done wrong. You can know that you've done wrong and, and not not really be what we call conviction of sin. Before I was saved, uh, I didn't go to church, and uh, my, my family didn't go to church. Uh, we were not church-going people. We never, until after I was saved and I asked my dad for permission to return thanks at the table, we never said grace in our home. We lived Sunday on the farm was just another day to do what we hadn't got done on Saturday. It was not a day of worship. It was just another day to get done some extra things. And I started going to church. Now, I didn't go there to get saved. Uh, I went there because that's where the girls was. In our rural community... That's where the girls was. And I'm being honest with you, that's why I went. And in our country community, I could, uh, after service, uh, I'd go up and ask some father, can I walk your daughter home? And, and most of the time, almost all the time, they'd say yes, and we'd walk down the road together, talk and so on. To you, it might not have been a big deal, but to us, it was. And I went there for that reason. When I first started going, I only went to Sunday school. After Sunday school was over, I'd come out of the church and sit on the front steps uh, of the church. And there was three or four other teenage boys. And we'd sit out there and talk. And wait for church to be over, and when uh, when the girls come out, we'd do our thing. One Sunday night, I was there, and I believe it was God that prompted me. And I told the fellas we're setting out. I said, "I'm going to go in tonight. I want to hear that preacher preach." I've never heard him preach. I've been going there for a couple of months or so. But I said, I want to hear him preach. And they said, ah, oh, yeah, we know you. You'll open the door, and after we go in, you shut the door and laugh at it. I said, no, I'm, I'm serious. I want to hear him preach. I said, to prove it, I'll go in first. And so in we went. I don't know what the pastor thought, but when us four, five, six boys come in and lined up towards the back on a pew, I don't know whether he thought, boy, what am I I in for? I don't know. But that night, he preached on Belshazzar, and the handwriting on the wall, and something happened. Something happened in my heart and life. And he preached, my friend, in a way 
Uh, well, it, it convicted me that I was lost. From that night on, I felt like uh, I, I, I knew I had done wrong, okay? I mean, I knew I was into things that was wrong. I mean, that, I wasn't that ignorant. I knew some of the things I was doing was wrong. But I did not see them as sin against God. I did not see them as something that would separate me eternally from God. That's not how I saw them. But after that night, in fact, as he was preaching, in my mind's eye, I saw Kenneth Yoder weighed in the balance of sin and found wanting. It, was, it had an awakening effect. Now, I didn't get saved that night. In fact, it was probably two or three months after that that I got saved. But from that night on, I started going to church and listening to the preaching each Sunday. And I began to weigh the cost, what it meant to be a Christian. And as I listened to the preaching, I seen that there was... Several things, in fact, quite a few, that I was going to have to give up if I was a Christian. And it seemed to be like that everything that I was having fun in, I was going to have to quit. And then, on the other hand, I seen that there were things I was going to have to start doing. And I weighed it. And... I didn't know whether I could live for God or not. In fact, the, the very day I got saved, I still had that question because I tried to change some things while I was under conviction. I tried to change, I made a little tiny head, headway on a couple of things, but I found that I was bound. I didn't know I was bound before. It was only when I tried to quit, when I tried to escape, that's when I found out I was bound. I was bound. And then I began to think, I can't be a Christian because I'm bound by these things. I could never live it. But the conviction becomes so heavy that I finally, I said, God, I don't know whether I can live it or not, but I can't live like this. It was tearing me up inside to know that I was against God and God was against me. Now what produced that? What caused that in me? What brought me to salvation, conviction of sin? The preaching. Old-fashioned church of God preaching. I wonder sometimes have we lost our ability to feel shame and guilt? Now I want to remind you of one thing, then I'm on close. I want you to remember that this loss is always progressive. It's not just like that. It's not just something that happens all at once. It's not something, my friend, that is cut off immediately. But it's something that happens a little step at a time. <laughs> you quit listening to your conscience. And... As you quit listening to your conscience or you override it and reason yourself out of obedience to God, you come to a place where you feel less and less prompting of conscience. And as you follow down, follow that road more and more, 
You know, most, of, most people start down that road, start down it because they were encouraged to by some other professing Christian. The other Christian started doing things and, and it didn't seem like it changed them. And so it encourages you to change. There may be times that we need to change. I'm not denying that. But be careful. Don't ever change if in your heart of hearts you believe something is really wrong. I don't care if everybody else accepts it. Everybody else changes. If in your heart of hearts somebody said, well, it's not clear. But is there a strong doubt? You know, doubtful things are sinful if the doubt's on, on, only on one side. Now, if there's doubts on both sides, then you have to go according to the best light you have. But if there's only doubt on one side, and you go ahead and do the doubtful thing, scriptures teach that that's a sinful thing. Because it's a disregard. Whether it's right or wrong, that's not the question. The question is, do you believe it's right or wrong? Kind of like the Christians in Corinthians and then also again in Romans that, that Paul wrote to, they believed that eating meat sacrificed unto idols was wrong. And Paul plainly says that it's not. But he says that if a man esteems it to be wrong, to him it is. That's why I said never, never go against what in your heart of hearts you believe is right or wrong. Until all the doubts are cleared away. And you, have, you can do it with a clear conscience. Now, if you don't live like that, you're not going to be able to pray to God and believe He hears you. The Bible says that we that come to God must believe that He is, and He's rewarded them that diligently seek Him. He also said in another place that if our hearts condemn us, God's greater than our hearts, and He also condemns us. Because when a person goes against what they honestly believe or is right and wrong, they are going against what God wants them to do. Paul said in, that, in, the, in Corinthians, read it, and also in Romans, that the question is not whether the thing is right or wrong. The question is if you esteem it to be wrong. And you go ahead and do it, it is wrong. I said all that to say this keep your conscience tender towards God. How do you keep a tender conscience? By obeying it. I know some of you know some people that had an over-tender conscience, and that can be troubling too. And that's an, another subject. We're living in a culture that is quickly losing its moral sensibility. It's the ability, it's moral discrimination its sense of moral obligation. We're, we're living in a culture that's losing that. And the question is, are we being affected by it to where we have now become part of the problem instead of the solution? Only you can answer that. Father, I delivered a few thoughts I had on my heart. And in some ways it seemed like it went down pretty hard. But I pray that thou will help us to realize, Father of Heaven, that 
these things are serious. We're, we're going to go to meet you. And Father, if we want to meet you in peace, we need then, Lord, to meet you with a clear conscience. I pray that thou will bless this dear people and that thou will help those, Father of heaven, that need your help today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand, please?